Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Chelsea Follett, and I am the managing editor of humanprogress.org here at Cato, a web project that documents with data the incredible progress that humanity has made over time and that helps to foster appreciation for the policies and institutions that have brought about modern prosperity. I'm also a policy analyst in Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, where one of the things that we focus on is the role of economic freedom to development, as opposed to top-down technocratic solutions that often lack humility and unfortunately result in unintended consequences, a viewpoint shared by the book that is the topic of our forum today. I want to thank everyone in attendance uh, despite the dreary weather, including uh, our online audience that had an easier time. Uh, for those here in person at this time, please take a moment to silence your phones and other devices. Our event hashtag tonight is policy humility, so please use that on your social media posts. I am delighted to host this book forum for economists Stephanie Halfley and Anne Hobson whose newly edited volume is entitled The Need for Humility in Policymaking. In this book, Stephanie and Anne argue that thoughtful policy analysis and policymaking require an acknowledgement of the challenges that politicians and regulators face when intervening in a complex and changing society. The book seeks to cultivate an appreciation for the complexity of human decision-making and the incentives that drive human behavior. In the edited volume, 12 scholars provide case studies examining the effects of regulations in diverse policy areas, including financial markets, computer and internet governance, healthcare innovation and delivery, and many others. The book's first chapter takes on perhaps the least humble policy prescription of all, the idea that modern computing power can finally allow central planning to be successful, and it only gets better from there. Uh, this is a wonderful book. Each chapter explores hubris in policymaking and subsequent unintended consequences of policy interventions. Perhaps my favorite example comes from chapter three, in the early 20th century, the US federal government banned gooseberries, a slightly tart berry used in desserts. The US federal government banned them in an attempt to protect the lumber industry because gooseberry bushes tend to host a kind of fungus that is harmless to gooseberries but can spread to and kill valuable white pine trees which are prized by the lumber industry. The bureaucrats who banned gooseberries did not predict what happened next. Banning gooseberries drove up their value and resulted in a thriving black market for gooseberries, such that gooseberry production actually increased after the ban, thus contributing to a deadly fungus epidemic among pine trees called the white pine blister rust until the 1920s, the exact thing that the ban was meant to prevent. This story about gooseberries beautifully illustrates the kinds of unintended consequences that policies can produce and why policymakers should exercise humility. But that's just one of many examples. For more, read the book. Uh, without further ado, let me introduce our distinguished 
speakers. Stephanie Hathley is a senior research fellow and deputy director of academic and student programs and a senior fellow for the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She is an alumna of the Mercatus Center MA Fellowship Program. Stephanie earned her PhD in economics at George Mason University in 2016 after receiving an MA in economics at George Mason University in 2010. She completed a presidential management fellowship where she worked in emergency and disaster management at both the Federal Emergency Management Agency and then the U.S. Forest Service. She earned a BBA in Economics and Finance from the University of North Alabama in 2007, and her research interests include Austrian economics, political economy, entrepreneurship, and developments. You can follow her on Twitter at SJHafley. Halfley is rather uh, unintuitively spelled H-A-E-F-F-E-L-E. We are also pleased to have with us Anne Hobson, who is a program manager for academic and student programs at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She was an associate fellow of technology policy at the R Street Institute and a 2017 to 2019 internet law and policy foundry fellow. Prior to that, Anne was a public policy associate at Facebook. She is currently pursuing a PhD in economics from George Mason University and is an alumna of the Mercatus Center MA Fellowship at George Mason University. She continues to focus on policy issues associated with emerging technologies, such as artificial intelligence, virtual reality, and cybersecurity. She received her BA in international studies from Johns Hopkins University. You can follow her on Twitter at Anne with an E, L. Hobson, H-O-B-S-O-N. Following their presentation, we will take questions from all of you in the audience. And afterwards, there will be a lunch reception and you will have the opportunity to purchase this fantastic book in the lobby. Great, thank you Chelsea and the Cato Institute for inviting us to do a book forum on the need for humility in policymaking, lessons from regulatory policy. As she mentioned, it's an edited volume by myself and Ann Hobson. The volume which came out with Roman and Littlefield International this year uh, highlights policy research by alumni of the MA Fellowship Program, which you heard about from my bio and Ann's. Um, and also what we think is a major lesson for policy, humility. Um, in this presentation, I'll go over the framework utilized in the book to examine policy, and then Anne will discuss the contributors and some of the case studies used. And we hope to have plenty of time for Q&A. Um, so I hope while you made it out here today in the cold, you're also ready to talk about these ideas and to consider a more humble approach to policymaking. All right, so sort of startups off the bat, why humility, uh, particularly in policymaking, particularly in this time period of policymaking? Uh, policymaking as a modern context is built upon the tradition of professional bureaucracy that was implemented and advocated by Woodrow Wilson and the rise of the progressive era. Technocrats can tweak the market to stem market failures. 
They can redistribute wealth to better serve citizens. They can negotiate security threats and aid other countries in time of war and humanitarian crises. Government can nudge citizens to better align their actions with their goals or incentivize behavioral changes. Policy wonks spend their days debating the nuances of particular policies, arguing for tweaks and adjustments that would better serve the population. To think about it in the terms of regulatory policy, it's even kind of more stark. As it's grown more technocratic over time, many in attempts to do better regulations to better serve the people, we look at particular issues like can we can we get, put a price on people's lives? How do we figure out which alternatives have the best cost and benefits? These are all in efforts to get us to think about alternatives and to possibly think about when we might not uh, do regulation. But even in this push for a more technocratic but potentially more humble approach to regulatory um, policymaking, we don't necessarily see assessments after the fact or adjustments after the fact or repealing regulations that might no longer work. And so this book tries to look at how we might take that approach and think about how to be more humble, particularly in regulatory policy. Expertise is the prime currency for policymaking. It's formal administrative training scholars who have spent their lives discussing these ideas, and leadership skills from other sectors become really pop popular. Politicians love to talk about expertise as well. We hear about the role that business owners can, can come in and shake up with policymaking. President Trump, while campaigning for the presidency in 2016, boldly claimed that only I can fix it. His claim that his skill in business would make him an effective president persuaded many. Now, Michael Bloomberg has entered the Democratic primary race, saying he is actually the businessman who can beat Trump and fix Washington. He says he's a doer and a problem solver, not a talker. But if we want to have a more humble approach to policymaking, if we want to figure out what might work best for um, the, the nation, we might need to talk a little bit before we do. And so how do we think about that as we're going through it? We might turn to policy wonks as political leaders. And with that, we see examples as Elizabeth Warren running that she has a plan to implement for many of her policy issues that she talks about on the campaign trail. The role for policymaking and policymakers and analysts is ever growing. You might say it's a great time to be in DC and have some pretty good uh, job security for all of us working in policy. Yet, the world is messy and complex. Circumstances change, new information enters our lives every day, and so does innovation. The political, economic, and social life is dynamic, and it's interconnected. The 2008 financial crisis is a good example of this. It wasn't any particular sector, maybe one could be blamed more than others that we might think about here, but it wasn't necessarily just the fact that banks were trying to get a lot of people to own homes. It was also that government had a stand in that and that altogether people were making these decisions that were impacted by, um, by government action by drives to own homes and, and to build communities in a way that we might not have others, otherwise seen. This interconnected policy impacts market activity, new innovations change the bureaucratic landscape and the landscape for regulation. Welfare is the subject of government, but also of civil society. Tweaking the system leads to all sorts of consequences and changes. 
And an important consequence of policy is that it affects real life humans who can learn and adapt. Let's consider a policy aimed at reducing the consumption of junk food. We just had a holiday weekend. We probably all overindulged a little bit or hope that we did if we stayed true uh, uh, to our diets or plans. So let's say we might get on board with an idea that a soda tax would help us change our behavior and drink less soda and consume less junk food. Depending on the tax and its structure and how many things are impacted, people might just shift their activities to different sugary drinks that they're interested in. Um, uh, notoriously, in a lot of these soda tax, things like frappuccinos, or certain energy drinks, or even really sweet tea, if you're from the South, aren't implemented in those, in those policies. And of course, the policy might not adjust behavior at all if the tax is too low. And that might be true if the real goal isn't to change behavior, but to increase revenues uh, and not necessarily curb the bad eating habits of our fellow citizens. Another example is to consider the ingenuity of the sharing economy, where people engaged in what our colleague Adam Thier calls permissionless innovation. They disrupted lodging and transportation sectors in a way we could never have anticipated, and regulators had to take a step and try to catch up after they were implemented. Many occupational licensing that was utilized before became ineffective, and there was backlash, but also an attempt to figure out uh, how this new dynamic system was going to impact society. Now today, we have hopefully less drunk drivers because there's more uh, Ubers and taxis around to do so. We can think about all the different ways that we can travel and feel more at home with Airbnb and other places. However, the sharing economy isn't all roses. Now that they've been implemented and they've been able to push some regulations back, they're now lobbying for some of their own regulations and to keep some of their competitors at bay. And so this complicated world where we might have a hero one day and a lobbying organization we need to worry about the next matters when we think about policy. Another way to think about this is the rich evade higher taxes. Teenagers know how to sneak into their houses after they've broken curfew. People figure out the parking spots that are less likely to get ticketed if they don't have. Uh, it's particularly true on the Fairfax campus um, of DreamU, figuring out how to kind of get around some of the high parking fees. People are crafty, and they're incentivized to get around overly burdensome and costly regulations. Whether imposed by themselves, their parents, their community, or their government. And particularly when we're thinking about kind of broad brush policies at the federal level, those are gonna have major unintended consequences, particularly with all sorts of communities. Some, like the soda tax, might not deal with or affect a good chunk of the population who isn't interested in eating a lot of junk food. Uh, it might, in fact, maybe be regressive and hurt low-income populations more than anticipated. So how do we go about understanding behavior and the implications of policy? Our book and our perspective talks about what Pete Becky, one of our colleagues, calls mainline economics. And we think mainline economics provides the framework needed to study this messy and complicated world and to bring about a more humble policy making. The term mainline economics is contrasted with mainstream economics. Mainstream economics is what's currently fashionable or on trend or deemed to be the best economics at the time. While mainline 
provides itself with a set of propositions that goes back to Adam Smith. Now, at any given time, mainline economics and mainstream economics might dovetail and be the same thing. Uh, but we've seen over time where they'll be quite disconnected. And you see that with the rise of nudge policies or Keynesian economics. And as we see how that turns away from propositions of mainline economics, how we might see different implications that come from that. So what do we mean by mainline economics? It's the study of exchange and the institutional settings within which exchange, cooperation, and conflict takes place. There's three major propositions of mainline economics. The first one is there are limits to our benevolence and the benevolence of others that we can rely on. And this goes back to Adam Smith, where he talks about it's not the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, and the baker, but their self-interest that keeps you fed. Um, but it also means in government that we can't necessarily rely on all of the political actors to always be thinking about our best intentions. They have other things they have to think about as well, including their family's livelihood and the next promotion that they have and all the complicated issues of other policies that are taking place in that area. Because of this, individuals face severe cognitive and epistemic limitations to how they can negotiate the world. Because we can't just expect everyone to think about us and do what's best for us all the time, we have to be able to negotiate the different things that are happening, the trade-offs taking place in every individual and the activities that take place. We might not know all of the reasons why a particular company might change a product or why a government might hope to curb junk food but actually end up raising revenue. And so how we think about those limits matters. The second proposition is that formal and informal institutions guide and direct human activity. We know this is true from formal institutions that are particularly prevalent when we do policy analysis, but we also know it's true about informal institutions too. None of us got through high school without knowing that shame and norms within our peers take place. That's true in small towns, and it's also true in how we think about navigating the world in a big DC area. How many times have we figured out somebody's really new to the area when they stand on the wrong side of the escalator to the metro, or they don't know how to navigate which direction to go to when they, and they turn down a wrong one-way one street the wrong direction. All of these informal institutions mixed with formal ones are curtailing the way we interact all of the time. And that's going to impact the way policies will trickle down into our everyday lives. If they mesh, well with the formal and informal institutions already in place, we're likely incentive compatible to do the ideal behavioral changes that we had. If we're, as a, as a society and a community, becoming more health conscious, and there's a whole bunch of things going on in our communities to help us with that, a soda tax might even not necessarily be needed, but it also might be easily implemented because we're all thinking about that anyways. So as I mentioned before, mainline economics goes back to Adam Smith, who discussed the invisible hand of market interaction, the need for moderation and empathizing with others in society, and the warnings of a man of systems. In mainline economics, six Nobel lectures in the tradition of Adam Smith, my colleagues Peter Betke, Virgil Henry Storr, and myself argue that contemporary exemplars of mainline economics include F.A. Hayek, Jim Buchanan, Eleanor Ostrom, Ronald Coase, Douglas North, and Vernon Smith. 
And in particular, we think that mainline economics is best represented today in the connection of Austrian, Virginia, and Bloomington schools of political economy. What does that mean? It means Austrian economics in the tradition of Hayek and Mises, public choice in the tradition of Buchanan and Tulloch, and institutional analysis, particularly that of the work of Eleanor Ostrom. And these traditions highlight issues with understanding the complex social world. So first, and probably most notably connected to the Austrian school of economics is this idea of knowledge problems and that they plague our interactions no matter what sector we're in, we're in. As Hayek pointed out, local knowledge, the knowledge of time and place, is dispersed across society, and it's often inarticulate. We can't quite explain how we know to go about a certain interaction or, or how we might put together a product or invent something new. We don't quite have the words to say it when we're asked for somebody to, to talk about it explicitly. In markets, prices and profits and losses economize our knowledge and provide signals to get us to understand and have shortcuts for interacting with one another. It means that I don't necessarily have to know all the reasons behind why a particular good increases in price. I just need to know it's increasing and I should adjust my behavior accordingly. Now that might be because there are major supply issues with resources um, that go into the product. Or it might be that it's becoming um, uh, scarce to, and, and the technology is changing rapidly. A bunch of things can be happening, and I just need to know the price went up or down, and I should maybe stop uh, purchasing it or shift to something else. We see some interesting examples where people sometimes forget about the role of price signals, and they want to know what's going on behind something. A couple of years ago, eggs got really expensive, and all of a sudden you saw grocery stores talking about why, because of particular weather conditions or, or issues at the farms that they were looking at. That's providing with extra context to help us understand the world, but we really don't need it to know when we're trying to figure out, should we be making a lot of quiche or not if, the, if eggs are expensive and scarce? So while markets are able to economize and provide signals for coordination, governments don't necessarily have the same shortcut, and they have a harder time solving the knowledge problem. They don't necessarily know right away if there's profits or losses in the policies taking place, and have a harder time knowing exactly what to do in that scenario. That's doubled down by the incentive problems that are pervasive in the public sector. Buchanan emphasizes the disconnect between cost and choice and how that changes the way we think about policies. When we just have to vote on a policy but pay taxes later, we don't necessarily know how those unbundle. Tulloch talks about the tendencies of bureaucracies to maximize budgets and grow in scope and scale. These incentives coupled with the knowledge problem impede intervention. It also impedes learning from and adjusting interventions when they don't work out the best that they can. Indeed, often after maximizing budgets and maybe not being as effective as they could be in their costs, they get the same budget or more next year. If they saved money, they'd get less and would have a harder time being able to uh, fulfill the needs that they'd have. After major issues with policies, let's take from my research everything that happened in the response and recovery from Hurricane Katrina. FEMA didn't get punished by this in the way that you'd think. They actually got larger budgets, more personnel, 
because it's hard to know why things went wrong. It could possibly be they didn't have enough resources to do so. This incentive problem is gonna make even the most benevolent bureaucrats have a hard time getting, job, getting the job done. And finally, people find all sorts of ways to solve collection active action problems and problems that we have that pervade society. The government isn't the only solution once we've decided markets won't solve the problem. Ostrom studies and documents common pool resource management all over the world and argues that community level activities can be effective where markets and government can't. And so even when we think maybe markets won't solve issues like providing welfare programs or the government has a really hard time with actually helping people recover after a storm, there's another space including civil society and nonprofits, but also just how communities figure stuff out together. One of the lessons from Ostrom is that this is really messy. It doesn't look the same in every community and it might not be the most ideal setting. There's gonna be things like sanctions and shaming that can happen in a community in order to make sure people don't overfish uh, in a pond or use water resources correctly. But that's gonna help make sure that they can actually cooperate most of the time together. Policy that does not account for adaptive human behavior and social context will lead to unintended consequences. Frederick Bastiat said it best. The entire difference between a bad and a good economist is apparent here. A bad one relies on the visible effects while the good one takes account of the effects one can see and those one must foresee. However, the difference between these is huge for it is almost always happens that when the immediate consequences is favorable, the latter consequences are disastrous and vice versa. From which it follows that a bad economist will pursue a small current benefit that is followed by a large disadvantage in the future, while a true economist will pursue a large benefit in the future at the risk of suffering a small disadvantage immediately. Failing to take this complexity into account can lead to expert control in our daily lives that lack humility. It also means that when, when something like interactions are politicized, that idea that we might go for the short run gain over the long run benefits is even heightened. Smith's assessment of the man of systems warns us of how experts might become and what they might do to society. He seems to imagine that he can change the members of a great society with as much ease as the hand arranges the different pieces upon a chessboard. He does not consider that the pieces of the hand have no other principle of motion besides that which the hand impresses upon them. But that in the chessboard of human society, every single piece has a principle of motion of its own, altogether different from what the legislature might choose to impress upon them. So we might think of policy as a way of organizing people on a chessboard and putting up boundaries and putting certain moves more advantageous than others. But we often forget that those chess pieces can move around and make decisions on their own and that they're incentivized to do so in pretty ingenious and crafty ways. And so every time we pursue policy that doesn't think about that, we have to pursue another one to, to, to use those unintended consequences. So instead, we need policymakers who embrace humility, recognize their limitations and their challenges. That means we need policymakers and analysts that understand that they don't know a whole bunch of stuff about how human activity works. That they need to think through how behavior might change and adjust when policies are implemented. 
that we shouldn't be surprised when a tax on soda makes a shift to other types of sugary drinks rather than just stopping all sorts of um, junk food consumption altogether. That taxes to businesses will move to different sorts of activities happening so that they can better use their resources. And we need to have a policy stance where we take the time to assess and reevaluate after they've been implemented. The ability to retract and review and tweak policies after they've happened. In the current state of policymaking, we talk a lot about the analysis up front, and there's plenty of space for us to really set in questions about humility into the policy experience, even if they're not necessarily listened when the policy has to be implemented. But once it's implemented, very rarely do we take the time, at least in formal um, government, to see how the effects took place and should we really fix it. Sunset clauses and reviews matter a lot, but happen very little. And that's because of the, the incentives to maximize budgets and grow in scope and scale. It's a lot easier to say we need to do more intervention than to say we messed up and we need to stop doing that intervention. So to really be able to think about humility and policymaking, we need that adjustment and review. To go back to the thinkers that we think are the modern day exemplars of mainline economics, they saw this issue with policymaking and have strict warnings for us as we think about them as policymakers. Eleanor Ostrom said, the most important lesson for public policy analysis derived from the intellectual journey I have outlined here, she's talking in her Nobel lecture, is that humans have a more complex motivational structure and more capability to solve social dilemmas than posited in earlier rational choice theory. Designing institutions to force or nudge entirely self-interested individuals to achieve better outcomes has been the major goal posited by policy analysts for governments to accomplish for more than the past half century. Extensive empirical policy research leads me to argue that instead, a core goal of public policy should be to facilitate the development of institutions that bring out the best in humans. So what Eleanor Ostrom is talking about is that we shouldn't necessarily be thinking about the policies that tweak humans to be exactly with what they want, but how can we create the settings where they can figure that out for themselves and that they can take the best options that we can have. Hayek says something similar. If a man is not to do more harm than good in his efforts to improve the social order, he will have to learn that in this, as in all other fields where essential complexity of organized kind prevails, he cannot acquire the full knowledge which would make mastery of the events possible. He will therefore have to use what knowledge he can achieve, not to shape the results as the craftsman shapes his handiwork, but rather to cultivate a growth by providing the appropriate environment. Again, Hayek's talking about how policymaking done right or done humbly isn't necessarily about achieving particular goals, but creating the space where people can achieve those goals together. So in a world where we look to experts to solve our problems, rather than how we as complex individuals and communities can try to do the best we can, we risk the damage that the man of system can do to society. Instead, we should embrace the messy world and the humility needed to try to understand and shape it. So with that, that's the framework we use to bring these essays together. And Anne's going to talk about some of the individual case studies in the book.
Thanks again to the Cato Institute and to Chelsea for hosting us, and also to all of you for uh, braving the tempest. So um, each of the chapters in this volume are alumni from the MA Fellowship. These are the, the authors. Um, and as we mentioned, both Stephanie and I did the MA Fellowship. This is a full-time paid fellowship for those pursuing a master's in applied economics at GMU. The fellowship seeks to train students in the economic way of thinking and prepare them for a career in public policy. So Stephanie was my supervisor in the MA Fellowship, and she hired me after um, she moved up in order to run it. So I had the pleasure of working with fellows for the past three years, but also being in it with some of the authors. The MA Fellowship is a job as well as a graduate program. So MA fellows work directly with Mercatus policy staff on tasks ranging from data management to co-authoring op-eds and policy papers. And having this work experience on their resume allows them to have the skills and confidence to be competitive in the job market. The chapter authors develop the ideas for their papers during the MA fellowship with mentorship and editing guidance from policy scholars and student program staff like Stephanie and myself. You can see accomplish or acknowledgments of this help in their citations and their notes in some of the chapters. As Stephanie mentioned, these papers have a policy focus and embody analytical lenses consistent with the Austrian Virginia and Bloomington schools of thought, with an emphasis on contributions from scholars of mainline economics, from Adam Smith all the way to Vernon Smith. You can see this image here, the, the tree that shows that evolution. So we train MA fellows to apply theory to practice, and we also train them to take context into consideration. So I'm gonna use an example from applied mainline economics. Um, Pete Becky often uses this example. Basically, you can imagine an alien in Grand Central Station, and if that alien only observed that people got on trains and came back from trains at around 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., they would assume that the ticking of the clock caused that behavior. But you and I know from context that that's just because of work schedules that people are, are crowding the platform during that time. So it's important to acknowledge uh, theory and, and narrative and understanding why um, these actions are occurring and understanding human behavior. So we take the self-discovery process in the fellowship very seriously. We encourage people to try different types of projects, different methods of analysis, and encourage them to intern in different policy roles. We also encourage them to dive into research projects that are parallel to their interests. So as you'll see in this volume, there's a variety of interests that come through. We also help them find jobs and policy spaces that are a good fit for them. We do mock interviews, we do resume reviews, and other skill building workshops to complement classwork. So the authors of these chapters now work at federal agencies, at finance firms, and nonprofits. And if you have gone on to get terminal degrees in law and economics, I also want to mention how rewarding it was to work with each of these individuals. They brought the right attitude to the experience, and it took a lot of time on their part to research, write, and edit their chapters. So we're personally very grateful for that effort. I would also like to thank Stephanie, my co-author, for patiently teaching me the procedures and the skill set necessary to co-author an edited volume. Uh, it was a really cool thing to be a part of. The chapters in this volume, as mentioned by Chelsea, cover tech, economic development, regulatory reform, telecommunications policy, healthcare, and finance and monetary policy. I thought I would summarize briefly what I see as the key insights from each of these chapters to jumpstart our conversation about the volume. So the chapter authors exemplify what good economists should do. As Hayek famously said, and this quote is written on the wall at Mercatus, 
The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they can imagine they can design. And as you will see, this message is spread throughout the chapters. So first, in Economic Flaws in Computerized Socialism, Joe Kane analyzes whether the information age could solve the knowledge problem and make central planning a viable method of economic organization. He finds that these claims that technology can solve the problem of economic calculation simply miss the point of the original Austrian critique. Central planning, using the internet or any other means, still cannot dispense with the market, without which the discovery of information necessary for calculation is impossible. As Joe Kane states, Discovering dispersed and tacit knowledge and capturing subjective preferences still requires the use of the market process. In this respect, computerized market socialism is no better than regular market socialism. In short, public policy in general would benefit from learning that lesson that the outcome of the market process is not separable from the process itself that generates it. In chapter two, Stephen Jones-Young estimates the total amount of discretion in crafting regulation in the Federal Railroad Administration, which is a medium-sized agency he uses, but he thinks that can be relevant to, to all agency behavior. His goal was to understand the role of key influences or key influencers in the rulemaking process. It finds that bureaucrats have space for independent action and do influence the outcome of rulemaking. Neither Congress nor the president is dominant in that process. Now, I think this paper gives us a really good overview of what a policymaker is. So I used to think of a policymaker as a career politician uh, or someone who's literally sitting in the halls of Congress drafting a bill. But it really comprises a process. It includes the executive branch, Congress, agency staff, the policy wonks that Stephanie mentioned, and interest groups. So in chapter three, Williamsport Revisited, this is a story of the rise and the fall of institutional environments that encourage economic growth at a local level. The chapter author, Erica Grace Davies, writes, the lesson for policymakers is to consider restraint from pursuing policies that favor some companies over others. In effect, policymakers fell into the trap of choosing winners and losers rather than leveling the playing field in competition in the lumber industry in Williamsport. I like this paper because it relies on personal experience and historical narrative to make an important point, namely that local policymakers need to be wary of cronyism. So in chapter four, The Fable of the Packets, Nicholas Crossy uses case studies to show that net neutrality regulations will negatively affect entrepreneurship in the internet and digital content space and also harm consumer welfare. In the past few years, bills have been proposed in Congress to re-implement net neutrality, so the arguments in this piece are still quite relevant. And as chapter author Nick Crossy argues, in a dynamic, evolving telecommunications industry, requiring companies to receive permission from regulators before trying new content arrangements will stifle the very competition and innovation that allows the internet to better serve the needs of consumers. In chapter six, Brian Dignan looks at tax-funded efforts to build out broadband internet and finds that while these efforts do produce small economic benefits, they cause a large increase in the size of local government. He argues that policymakers should direct efforts at fostering private projects for broadband deployment rather than pursue more public initiatives. In chapter six, Ariel Slonim started from the hypothesis that states 
with certificate of need laws would have less hospitals in them because those laws require new businesses to prove they're worthy to enter the market. In other words, con laws raise the price of entry to healthcare provision. She ran regressions to test this relationship, but they were inconclusive. And I think it's very important to publish inconclusive results because the incentives of the current academic market are often to have authors tweak and rerun regressions until you get the desired result. And that desired result is usually a statistically significant parameter. But that misses the point that the world is complex and regression analysis by itself can't entirely explain the relationship between variables because you need that context I talked about. So much of research isn't about, be, um, isn't about being sure of something. It's about uh, using a variety of methods, including narrative and theoretical lenses, to make sense of real world issues. And this to me is Ariel's contribution. She takes economic theory seriously and embodies humility by embracing the inconclusivity of her results. And I think it's important to note that other research has found evidence that con laws do result in hospitals being locked out of markets. And in fact, states with con laws do have fewer hospitals as the law of economics would tell us to expect. Chapter seven examines whether political affiliation affects the likelihood that a state will be approved by the federal government for a Medicaid waiver. Medicaid waiver grants funds to states uh, and gives them flexibility on how to implement that program. Chapter author Kelly Ferguson finds that the current administration is more willing to waive Medicaid proposals from governors belonging to the same political party. So Kelly argues that any policy to improve healthcare must be designed with a clear-eyed recognition of the lessons that public choice theory teaches us that a man or woman cannot eschew the mantle of self-interest, whether they are acting in the private commercial sphere as a federal bureaucrat under constitutional oath, or as the president of the United States. So financial and monetary policy is an area in which professional economists are given a lot of influence. I think this is because money and prices are the bread and butter of the profession. Uh, and yet, because monetary policy has such large distributional effects throughout the economy, even more humility is needed in this policy area. In chapter eight, Chris Kuiper applies Austrian business cycle theory to the 2008 financial crisis. And he finds the Federal Reserve's monetary policy actions contributed to the crisis. He argues in favor of free banking as an alternative system. In a free banking system, decentralized market forces control the supply of money rather than a central bank. And as this chapter author argues, relying on a handful of people to correctly guess and constantly update a key price component to coordinate an entire economy is not a robust system. Recognizing this requires an extreme amount of humility, as well as a somewhat counterintuitive position that exerting less control over the macro economy can produce a more stable outcome. In her chapter on failed interventions, Caitlin Christ looks at attempts at post-recession stabilization in the US. She finds that the sustained use of monetary and fiscal policies in increasing high debt environments appear to frustrate the ability of macroeconomic stabilization to steady economic activity. According to the author, this chapter shows how policymakers should be cautious when trying to spend themselves out of recessions or in the, in the future, or as in the case today, when trying to reestablish a normalized interest rate. Any sound attempt at reconstituting stabilization policies must focus directly on restraining excessive debt accumulation. In chapter 10, 
Author Christine Johnson analyzes the efficacy of risk-based capital standards implemented by policymakers after the financial crisis. She finds that requirements come with no actual benefit of increased stability. The policy does, does not actually achieve its intended goal. And this is a theme you'll see throughout the chapters. In the chapter author's own words, words if the goal of financial regulation actually has to do with ensuring solvency and mitigating systemic risk, the current requirements should be, to be evaluated in light of those intentions. Given the stated difficulties and various unknowns in regulating the financial system, policymakers may do well to take a more simplified foundational approach, such, such as relying on standard leverage ratios. In chapter 11, David Ron investigates the value of legal entity identifiers for financial market participants. So in this model, anybody who participates in these markets, any firm will get an identifier. These LEIs are supposed to allow regulators to identify concentrations of market risk. But bad data integrity and poor implementation meant that LEIs still mainly serve as a regulatory requirement rather than a boon to market participants. As David Ron states, the transparency goals of the LEI system are laudable. But the, failure, the failures of regulatory bodies during the past financial crises should serve as a warning against attempting to accomplish these goals solely by regulatory mandate. If there are no benefits to firms in their individual ability to assess risk, even if the LEI system does provide better data to regulators, there is no guarantee that the system will be beneficial to society. I like this chapter because it reminds me of key insight from James Scott's Seeing Like a State. Um, and that is that the state is incentivized to make the market legible to itself, but in doing so, incurs a cost to community and industry activity at the lower levels. Chapter 12 looks at the Volcker Rule, a section of the Dodd-Frank policy reforms. The Volcker Rule restricts commercial banks from trading securities for their own accounts and limits their ability to affiliate with hedge funds and private equity firms. The rule was intended to limit risk in the financial system. But this chapter finds that the rule is unlikely to achieve that because the real source of risk is the moral hazard that results from public institutions providing support to banks and their creditors, which creates incentives for banks to assume more risk than they otherwise would. In conclusion, these chapters use diverse methodologies and they focus on different policy areas. They share two really important features. First, a recognition of the role that knowledge, incentives, and institutions play in allowing us to understand economic activity. And second, an acknowledgement of the need for humility in policy design, lest unintended consequences dominate. As Hayek said in his Nobel speech, the recognition of the insuperable limits to his knowledge ought indeed to teach the student of society a lesson of humility. This should guard him against becoming an accomplice in men's fatal striving to control society a striving which makes him not only a tyrant over his fellows, but which will make him the destroyer of a civilization which no brain has designed, but in which, grown, which has grown from the free efforts of millions of individuals. This volume demonstrates how policymakers can be more humble, but I think this also leaves more uh, room for exploration. As we noted in the introduction, shifting behavior and guiding outcomes is a difficult task, and the message of humility is not always welcome among policymakers. So, Questions remain, how do you operationalize humility across the board in the public sector? Is it a value instilled at an individual level? Would putting it in an agency mission statement be meaningful? What about including Hayek's generality principle and applying that to regulations? This means that each law or policy must apply to everyone equally. 
Is that a way to operationalize it? Or maybe it's about requiring a regulatory impact analysis or some type of review process for regulations. Lastly, it could be about a first do no harm rule for policymakers. But I think that each of these questions are ripe for further study. And I really look forward to the discussion after this. So thanks a lot. Thank you both. Uh, before we open up to questions from the audience, I have some quick questions for each of you to start off the discussion. Uh, when I was reading this book, uh, it covers so many policy areas, but something that jumped out to me is that the lessons of this book can really apply to any policy area. Uh, I, I thought about how in my own policy area, international development, so often well-intended policies meant to help the global poor end up harming the very people they intend to help. And you both work in policy. You have your own policy areas. Uh, Stephanie has done a lot of work on disaster relief policy and on technology policy. And so uh, my first question to both of you would be, uh, how do the lessons of this book apply to your own policy areas? Another question would be, well, as I was reading this book, my favorite chapter was the one focusing on the economic fortunes of Williamsport, Pennsylvania, because that chapter seemed particularly relevant. Um, because reading about how the policies of this town, both good and bad, affected its fate really challenged the idea that is now on the rise that globalization and technological change leave certain communities behind and they're powerless to do anything about that from a policy perspective. And so while that was the chapter that jumped out to me and that struck me as particularly relevant today. My question for each of you would be, when you were editing this volume, which chapter or chapters struck you in particular as especially relevant, either to your own interests or perhaps to the present political moment that we find ourselves in? Were there any chapters of this book that jumped out at you in particular? Uh, let's start with Stephanie. Great, thank you. Yeah, so I think this framework that we embrace at Mercatus and, and the uh, economics department at George Mason University of mainline economics or this intersection of Austrian public choice and institutional analysis really brings a lot to bear for any sorts of policy areas and has influenced me a ton in my own research. Uh, so I have done quite a bit of work on disaster recovery and particularly how communities and individuals find ways to recover after a disaster. And that has included doing a lot of field work to really get on the ground and see how, what did people experience, uh, ask them questions about what mattered, what um, was burdensome to them, what organizations or people helped them in their time of need. And something that I think comes from that is one, this idea that uh, economics should include going on the ground uh, and doing archival work and other things, uh, sometimes is missed uh, in, in the discipline. And so this embracement of these ideas uh, is what made me realize that that is a space and a method that's useful to dig into. Um, but also really find, in order to put yourself in front of a disaster survivor and ask them to tell them their story, uh, and to tell them who helped and who didn't and how they feel about going about um, their future requires a sense of humility on a whole different level of just being able to analyze policies. Uh, you've got to be able to um, have uh, Smith's sympathy and be able to talk to them about the real dangers that they've had and the um, mental and physical issues that they've experienced 
as well as be able to sort of sift through all of the information they're providing to get at some, some key lessons that we can learn across the board for disaster recovery. Uh, and so one thing we found is that, you know, people are really tied to the places where they live and, and have grown up. Um, but that alone isn't enough to help them recover after a storm. You need resources. You need to know that your neighbors are going to return, that you're going to have a job when you come back and customers to serve. And so the role for community leaders and local entrepreneurs um, and local politicians and bureaucrats to, to be able to to show that recovery is possible matters a lot and can help sift through the noise or show signals when federal policy or even state level recovery plans are a lot more murky and confusing. Um, so after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, uh, the city of New Orleans had a redevelopment plan that decided to turn a whole bunch of neighborhoods into green space. And unsurprisingly, a lot of those people were really upset that their neighborhoods might be able to go away. Um, and so they were able to fight back and show vitality, but that meant that they were having to spend a lot of time proving they should exist rather than actually recovering. They were able to do both, and that mattered a lot. Um, another thing that was important, and maybe this is a lack of humility on the idea of a bureaucrat as entrepreneur, but mattered a lot, is uh, superintendents who decided that they were going to commit to their promises of, of opening schools back, even when FEMA and uh, the Department of Education were saying they needed at least a year to, to return. And so that commitment to their promises and their ability to kind of go against some of the um, policies that were getting placed mattered a lot in recovery. Uh, and so I think that that sort of the, those those stories and that experience has shaped a lot of what I've thought about things. Uh, now being able to look at how FEMA assistance has been effective after Hurricane Katrina and Sandy, uh, we found that statistically, uh, when controlling for damage and other things, people are like more likely to get individual assistance from FEMA uh, if they have more than a high school education and if they're not foreign born. So said another way, people are less likely to get assistance if they didn't graduate from high school or they're from another country um, originally. And one thing that really struck out to, stuck out to me about that is that it's not necessarily being targeted. It's the fact that applying for FEMA assistance, appealing when you get denied, figuring out the process to how to do that is really complicated. And if you're not as adept in bureaucracy, if you don't have the political capital of the city of the nation that you now live in, it becomes a lot harder to be able to get assistance. And so we might all agree that after a storm, FEMA should be giving money to the people who need it the most. Uh, but that's not happening because of the process of how to get, apply for, appeal for, and get assistance. And so if we really want to think about who we should help um, and who should be affected by government, we need to know that these processes lead to unintended consequences and that we should be able to then think about what then is the best choice, what, what options do we have to help those in need if federal assistance isn't the one to do. You mentioned favorite chapters, and I have to say I like the Williamsport chapter quite a bit as well because it gets at some of these methods I'm really interested at, and it asks a question I've always been really driven by um, when studying and doing policy research, and that's how do real people on the ground get impacted and adjust to policies? And so that chapter I think was really great for me as, and working with 
um, Erica Grace Davies as she was working on it because she got to really dig into that. It was personal because her family is from the Pennsylvania area. Uh, she knew people who were affected, and I think that changed that quite a bit. Um, Joe Kane's chapter on uh, revisiting uh, socialism in technology is great as well, um, but it's hard to pick when you get to work with so many of the students as well. Yeah, thanks for the question. So um, I actually did my MA policy essay on uh, Cuba, and we were exploring why the, uh, or exactly how Cubans were overcoming barriers to the exchange of remittance cash money and also in-kind goods, like sending repair parts um, in the mail, things like that. Uh, we went down there to interview people to try to get the story that matched the data because what you could see was in 1993, the dollar was legalized in Cuba and then all of this remittance money that was formal, uh, you could see that start rising like this. And so it became a question of, all right, what do people do with that money? Uh, what do people use it for? Uh, is it helping them uh, build businesses? Is it helping them just survive? And the answer was all of the above, um, but one element of that that I think was, was really interesting is that uh, the policies that the US and Cuba both had in, in terms of remittance money really affected what people chose to do with that money. So there's a 10% tax on the Cuban side of cash remittance money. And so there are many people uh, who choose not to send remittance money because that 10% goes to the Cuban government. Um, on the US side, uh, Republican administrations have often chosen to either limit or completely remove the amount of remittances that could be sent from the US to Cuba. Same thing with travel. We also looked at that to some level. Um, and as you would note, uh, the current administration also has chosen to do that. They got rid of donative remittances, which are where friends send to friends. And they also got rid of um, travel to some degree. It's a little bit murky and uncertain. And as a result of that policy, uh, entrepreneurs have really suffered in Cuba. There's a lot of news stories about this. So you can see how those unintended consequences of these policies that are meant to punish the regime are actually punishing the people on the ground. And we heard many stories that corroborated uh, that reality. So not only does humility relevant to that, in that sort of uh, example in Cuba, but it's also relevant to work I've done in cybersecurity policy. Uh, so I look a lot at at why or big comprehensive data regulations and why that's probably not the best approach given how complex and dynamic uh, these ecosystems are. So specifically the Internet of Things ecosystem. So you can imagine your doorbell, your thermostat, if they're smart, uh, capable um, devices. These are some of the examples of things that have unintended consequences in terms of uh, insecurity. So basically the insecurity of my device can affect someone on the other world's internet experience um, because of things like botnets. <laughs> and so when you consider policy interventions in that space, um, it, it is extremely complex because of all of these uh, negative unintended, um, basically these externalities that are occurring. So one thing that we learned there is that it's probably better to have targeted ex post response to harm. And this echoes lessons in uh, Nicholas Crossy's chapter um, on net neutrality. This is very much a permissionless innovation story. So the idea is to uh, not have precautionary regulation occur right at the outset, but to allow these technologies to develop and when specific harms do emerge, to target policies directly at those harms after the fact. Um, and that's one of the things, one of the lessons that my research in cybersecurity has shown again and again. Now, uh, 
chapters. You asked about chapters. So I, uh, I really like the tech ones, so telecom, the two telecom chapters and uh, Joseph Kane's one because of the content. Uh, I, I work in that space, so I find them really intriguing and interesting. Uh, but I also want to reiterate about Ariel Slonim's chapter. I think that to set out with a theory and then to not find that it's supported, your, your hypothesis, really embodies what humility means uh, in terms of doing research. Okay, we will now open up to uh, the audience for questions. Please wait to be called on. We've got microphones. Um, please wait for uh, microphones to arrive in front of you before speaking so that everyone in the room can hear you and so that our online audience can hear you. Uh, before asking your question, please state your name and if you have one affiliation, that would be most welcome. And please try to keep your questions relatively concise so that we can get to as many as possible. Uh, so to start, um, the, the gentleman with the mustache. Thank you. I'm Leon Weinschaub, a retired member of the Foreign Service. I have a, a couple of, of, of questions that are unrelated, one to the other. The first is, uh, how do you deal with uh, what's called the tragedy of the commons, with uh, overgrazing of land, which becomes useless, overfishing in rivers and seas without r r regulation? The uh, second is, I'd like to ask you about your example of the FEMA and the problem with over-bureaucratization uh, making it much more difficult for people, unintended consequences, without a, high school, without a college degree or foreign-born. I suspect those requirements may have been, I don't know from personally, to satisfy some other goal, which was to how to eliminate fraud. Very often these, in fact, are put in the legislation very heavily, heavily bureaucratic requirements because fraud often has taken place. So I'd like to, to ask you about that as well. Thank you so much for those questions. Great, thank you. Um, so first off with the tragedy of the commons question. So we'll rely on uh, Eleanor Ostrom's work uh, to talk about that. Um, so she was the first uh, female economist to win the Nobel Prize in 2009 for her work on common pool resources, where she basically says that the tragedy of the commons is a problem where you don't really necessarily have clearly defined property rights and you can lead to overgrazing or overconsumption of a particular good uh, in a community. So imagine there's a, there's a pond in the center of a community uh, that has a ton of fish in it. Um, no one owns the pond. No one's necessarily there to monitor. People can go in. They're gonna, if they're going to fish too much, uh, take, take too much, and over time they won't be able to sustain themselves. It's kind of the idea of tragedy of the commons. Another one to think about is like the kitchen at your office, right? Like no one's really monitoring. Who knows whose dirty dishes are there? And all of a sudden it's a mess, and the refrigerator is really gross, and you need to fix it, right? Uh, at Mercatus, we actually have a paper about the tragedy of the commons posted in our kitchen to remind people to clean up after themselves. Um, but what Eleanor Ostrom was able to say is that communities can find ways to put limits on these um, common pool resources in a way that would lead to less overconsumption. And so she looks at how community ownership and particular types of arrangements can be devised that allow for sanctions when you overfish, um, uh, monitoring and expectations of what particular communities will do, and ways to get community buy-in on the maintenance 
and um, upkeep of these resources. And so while the issue of a tragedy of commons is a real one, she's found by documenting many, many examples that people find ways to kind of institute their own arrangements that, that lead to less overproduction. Uh, now this requires you know, some level of, of, of communal interaction and self-governance is a way that you could think about it. So rather than needing a federal government to come in and establish property rights or it to become purely private where one person owns the pond and does that, you have more of a self-governing arrangement within a community that has these institutions that take place. So uh, in that space it shows we might not need to rely on a more um, central government in some of these instances sort of right off the bat. Now that leads us to ask a whole bunch of questions that might be reasons for, um, uh, for regulation. So uh, overproduction or externality issues is a major reason why governments should regulate into market activity or, or uh, community activity. Another is um, uh, sort of a you know, all sorts of market failures that you might be able to, to do. That idea that a good is a public good rather than one that is a common pool resource or a private good as well. And there's a whole bunch of research that kind of adds us to question, you know, when should we really deem certain activities as, as having been a market failure and how do, how do we implement them? So sort of looking at the world around us for real world examples of how people have figured this out, but then also being able to really assess what's the role for government in that space, I think matters quite a bit. The question on FEMA's overly bureaucratic process, definitely. So one of the main reasons why um, uh, a, a process for getting aid has is so cumbersome or goes through such a lengthy review process or the number of appeals that have to be generated are so high is often because we're concerned about fraud. We're concerned about not being able to identify who really needs something over, over another. What's interesting about this is does it really get at, are those concerns actually um, hindering the goals we're hoping to do? Um, so there is issues with fraud after every disaster. But it's not necessarily because of all the crafty people applying for funds that don't need it. There surely is some of that for sure. It's actually issues of fraud with, with the partnerships of different organizations on how to assess damage. Um, what are their incentives to assess quickly? And, and, and um, what are the organizations, whether within FEMA or other federal agencies or folks like the Red Cross doing to get those things out? And so there, the elements, I think, of some of the issues with f central aid central government aid, is that we might be focusing on a particular sort of fraud, individuals trying to seek excess money from the government, rather than the process and how there might be fraudulent activities there. If we're really interested in helping those that might be most in need, that don't have access to particular resources, um, and that might have a hard time going through these formal processes, we might need to consider allowing a certain number, a certain aspect of fraud, a certain percentage, in order to help those in need. And that would require reducing some of the, the, the application process and the paperwork that's needed. Uh, that would help make sure people have access to resources that we might not have otherwise. I think it's unlikely that's going to happen because of sort of the, the, the process and, and then the concerns that are taking place. Uh, we find this much more easily implemented by more 
um, decentralized forms of, forms of aid. Um, so being able to give out gift cards or having a, a local uh, church or synagogue, being able to take in donations and distribute it to their community members. They're gonna be better at helping people identify who's in need, uh, and they might be willing to take on some sort of risk of, you know, maybe somebody doesn't need $500 who gets it, but a whole bunch of people who did do. And so I think that balance matters quite a bit. Uh, Anne and I and our co-author Virgil Storr are working on a paper that kind of really gets at this question. So in order to recover quickly and, and do well after disasters and crises, you need resilient communities, ones that can come together and solve problems on their own and be able to recover quickly. Um, often now, federal government is tasked with trying to make communities more resilient. But when they have processes in place like the ones we've been talking about, uh, it seems like they're the wrong mode of being able to encourage and cultivate resilience. And so being able to get more access to resources, being able to go about recovery at the community level is going to do a better job of helping people in the time of need. And so how those different processes, a central government with all of the challenges that they have and the concerns that they have leading to a bureaucratic process is at some level going to be inconsistent with some of the goals of a quick recovery or resilience. Yeah, I'd like to add on to the response about how we govern tragedy of the commons with an example. So in the cybersecurity space, the more connected devices you have, uh, the more cybersecurity concerns. But uh, if you apply sort of that Ostromian analysis of, of multiple centers of governance and power in dealing with that problem, what it might look like is that you have multiple organizations from trade associations to individual researchers to internet service providers providing a variety of little solutions that lead to an acceptable amount of security. So in this case, those solutions could be anything from uh, guarantees and warranties on products to best practices that industries decide upon um, to insurance and also uh, programs to certify products. So to me, Ostrom's insight was that governance itself doesn't have to come just from government. So it can come from the individuals on the ground dealing with that uh, problem directly. So one of the coolest pieces of information I found in my research was that there's a device, um, there's a, actually a few of these now, smart routers have this capability for the most part, but also there's individual devices you can attach to your home network um, that will basically allow you to control and see when malware uh, is detected. Um, but also when, uh, when, the, when your device is being used as part of an illegal botnet. So it empowers people on the ground to be able to deal with those uh, collective action problems. Okay, let's go to our next question. Uh, let's, let's go with the uh, gentleman in blue up front. Uh, thank you. I'm Dave Rabinowitz. I'm retired. And I'm just wondering, how do you operationally define humility? in such a way that we can tell whether we or someone else are being humble at, one po at a certain point, remembering that your focus determines your reality. Great question. Yeah, so I think in some ways it's, it's really asking ourselves, are we being what Bastiat calls the good economist, right? Are we really looking at what's seen and unseen? Uh, are we really looking at unintended consequences? In that way, a lot of uh, policy and anal anal um, analytic work really does that already. The challenge is then operationalizing that within actual policymaking. Um, and so I think being able to consider uh, questions 
in the in the process of regulating, which many do now, and many of our alumni get to work in these areas and talk to us about it. Of you know maybe in the in the assessment of doing a regulatory impact analysis, a lot of the a lot of the discussions and decisions on policies are already implemented or have already been made, but we still need to look at the costs and benefits and the alternatives that are taking place. Uh, but often where they can really have a space for, for discussion is in the meetings that take up to that. So being able to ask questions, is this the right way to go about it? Have we thought about these concerns? Are particular populations being treated or mistreated over others. That discussion in policymaking, I think, matters quite a bit. Uh, and then I think a way to really Im implement a type of humility would be to implement reviews and sunset clauses and, and assessments of, of um, regulations and policies that we could, we could track back. But I think being able to be able to really think about what's our aim are these policies really gonna help us assess afterwards? We've got a ton of literature that says that particular policies, whether domestic or, or, or um, foreign policies, don't achieve what we hope they would. And so being able to really have those discussions I think matters quite a bit. Yeah, so you stole most of my answer, so that was good. But uh, the secondary consequences is really what I think is important. So once you decide on a policy decision, uh, really thinking about what the effects will be after the fact, and then implementing some form of, of review. So that might look like this occupational licensing law doesn't have the unintended effect. Like, look at these independent studies that have been done by researchers. Um, let's go about the, the process in the state legislature for uh, repealing that law. Um, so I think that, that could be how it works in, in practice, but it would depend industry to industry. So for some industries, uh, permissionless innovation might really make sense. Um, whereas if there is a specific direct harm that's anticipatory, so like with nuclear power, uh, that might be a different balance of, um, of caution in determining secondary effects. All right, our next question. Let's go for the, uh, the young woman toward the back. Thanks for the presentation. Um, Claire Basil of the R Street Institute and Public Interest Fellowship. Um, there's been a lot of talk of local communities and how they might serve the needs of their um, populations better than, say, a federal program. Uh, I'm curious, if looking in particular at instances of like Rust Belt towns where you see really, it seems like the complete absence of local communities and breakdown. Um, where does the responsibility fall to step in if those local actors on the ground are no longer present? Yeah, on, on some level that sounds like a bit of a federalism question, but I think a, a framework through which to evaluate uh, that question would be um, Ostrom's uh, framework in determining constitutional, um, operational, and policy level uh, like decisions and policies. So basically, um, what level is appropriate at, for what specific policy problem? And what does it make sense in terms of uh, the community being able to handle it versus a local policymaker or a city level policymaker or a state level policymaker? Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think when we're thinking about some of these sort of um, communities that have faced financial issues, economic issues, uh, health uh, issues and are really struggling, there's a couple of things that we need to take into account. Some, what are the, what are the policies that have been burdensome to those communities to begin with? Um, so uh, 
you know, are there issues with access to healthcare and um, the way that, you know, healthcare services are being provided that that could be of, of assistance? Are there, um, uh, you know, sort of other types of policies that we might be able to retract or, or assess? Because um, given that we, you know, given that communities are impacted by all these things, when, when a crisis hits, who then should respond matters by looking at how, how those go about. Um, I do think there's really, there's interesting case studies to look at and then to be able to see what happens when these, these types of cities are going through major change. So the Williamsport uh, chapter really looks at, you know, in, in sort of early um, lumber, economy, these, some of these areas in Pennsylvania and Appalachia were, were boon towns. Um, and they were really thriving because of these natural resources and, and the access to those things like railroads and other technology took that uh, and really changed those towns. Some of the policies that were set in that, in that, in that time period impacts what we're thinking about today. Other things like you know shale and fracking are changing some of these towns really quickly as well. And so that kind of dynamic process I think matters to look at, but when these, I think when a community is uh, majorly impacted by one type of industry or resource over another, it can, can become a lot more volatile. And so how do we really think about how those communities can um, uh, you know, get education and diversity and, and, and things like that matter, I think, quite a bit. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about, you know, some of these towns and think, you know, like, why doesn't everyone just move away? And, and as we've seen, a lot of people do. Um, uh, but really thinking about what are the options uh, that people have, what are the safety nets and communities that people do, and how can you build those, I think, matters quite a bit. But I think it requires a lot of care and also thinking about what people... Uh, have options for and what matters to them, I think, I think matters quite a bit. Um, after a major storm like Hurricane Katrina, people were like, let's just not rebuild New Orleans. Uh, it's under seawater. You know, there's a whole bunch of things that we, we have. We have questions about climate change and coastal cities needing to be moved. Um, at the same time, you had people saying the culture and uh, the experience of living in New Orleans is totally unique. And so if it doesn't get rebuilt, we'd lose this. And so you have these sort of two polling ideas. What matters is some people decided to move and restart somewhere new, and that's great. They should be able to do so and make those choices. But you did have people who were able to come back and show that there was a reason why that community exists and think about how we might be able to you know, continue that in a way that maybe makes you less vulnerable to risk afterwards. And so that sort of challenge requires no easy answer. Um, uh, but to be able to really think about all those consequences matters quite a bit. All right, for our next uh, question, we will take uh, one from the gentleman with the tie. Um, Roger Drigg, University of Oxford. Um, you mentioned that mainline economics uh, refers to limits on benevolence. Now, I'm not quite sure if you're, that's just an empirical issue or whether you're saying something stronger that people can't act um, for the interests of others altruistically. But either way, how does it actually affect policymakers? Because if policymakers are unlikely to be benevolent, uh, then uh, they're not really pursuing the common good than the public good. They may be pursuing their own interests, however uh, d defined. And is that a problem about public policymaking? 
Yeah, so I definitely say that we're not saying that people can't act benevolently, but that you can't rely on them to always do so. So people, many people are very aware and want to help others and the public good and um, are really kind of civically minded in that way. Uh, working in federal government for a couple of years, I met tons of people who that was really what they believed they could do. But within the um, setting of of politics, that's hard hard to do. So one, people might not always be acting on the best intentions of others because they have their own concerns to worry about. It's not necessarily that people are selfish instead of altruistic. It's that we're complex and we have a bunch of needs, right? So I might really care about um, helping a community of mine and be able to volunteer and do other other works to make sure people to make sure that I am providing a service to others, being service-minded, I think is em empirically shown. But I also need to worry about you know, being able to keep food uh, on my table and to make sure that I can take care of my family and maybe my close friends first. Uh, and I need to be concerned with you know, doing a good job at work so that I can continue to be employed, um, maybe uh, promoted and things like that as well. So people are just really complex. And so this idea that people will be acting solely in um, using altruism is, I think, something that we should be wary of. Because of that, we then know that this idea of government as being purely something of the public good and people being of service to others should be questioned. That matters a lot. And that's where the, I think the um, lessons from public choice economics really comes into fray because it doesn't mean everybody's evil or doesn't have people's intentions at heart. It's that the incentives make it so if people are concerned about their job as well as others and that the institutions that are there will make that challenging. So I think this idea that we could turn to government when we're frustrated or when there's a challenge at place and, and it will fix it is something we should be very cautious of. And we should be asking more about how we as citizens and community members can do that. That might be within government, but it might be within other options as well. And so I think that matters a ton, not because anyone say ill-intentioned or selfish, but that people are just really complex. And that if the whole idea of public intervention is based on the idea that we can kind of strip away those complex incentives, that's, that's a major concern. Yeah, so another take on the benevolence point is that is the importance of recognizing that economics puts limits on, on people's utopias. And so, as she mentioned, like, when, if I entered into civil service, I don't automatically become a saint. I bring in uh, every aspect of the personality that existed before that, and as well as intent and, and the desire to respond to incentives. So in a, another piece that we argued called Inside Leviathan um, on that you can find on Econ Library. Uh, it, we basically say that maybe it's valuable if we just call bureaucrats or civil servants employees, because effectively they are just like we are. Um, and so uh, one thing to think about is then that the rules of the game at the constitutional, the policy, and the operational level then work to put constraints and put limits on those actors within a, an economy. And that's, that's what we should focus on, is that level of institutional analysis. All right, uh, for our next question, uh, the uh, gentlewoman uh, to the left. 
Thanks. Um, very interesting. My name is Andrea Boyack. I'm from Washburn University School of Law. Um, and I had a question about how your humility framework works to deal with the problems of exploitation and inequality that I think you end up seeing argued on both people pro and against additional uh, policy solutions. So on the one hand, they say, oh, the problem is, is we have an inequality of economic um, means. So because money is unequally distributed, we need to have more involvement of a government. And on the other side, it's really sort of the same argument on the flip side, that there's an inequality of power. And we, to avoid corruption and cronyism and people lining their own pockets, as you said, um, we need to have less policy. But we're just really sort of shifting the ball back and forth between two frameworks that are both fundamentally unequally allocated. And is there some role here for your framework of humility to cut through that and possibly create more equally situated players so that you don't have the same sorts of problems of exploitation? Um, and I also am interested in the frame going from like big government to community level, because I think sometimes we think that if things have devolved to a smaller level of government, that's going to avoid the power problem. But in other ways, I think we have plenty of evidence that that's not true. I mean, if you've gone to any sort of uh, zoning board uh, meeting, for example, or a community, you see that the people who know the people are the ones who are gonna have big voices. And you have huge issues of excluding from a community and some very bad economic decisions at a local level. So it's always curious to me when people's solution to, well, we can't have the market deal with it because we have you know tragedy of commons or other problems. We can't have the big government, but we'll just go to the small level government. That's the solution. Maybe it's actually not the solution at all because we have these exact same problems or maybe even worse. Sorry, that was a long question. No, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, yeah, so I think that the challenge of power and equity matters and is a major part of any sort of policy or, or government intervention. Um, and so I think that there's a couple of things that you know the framework and the idea of, of humility can bring to the table. So, so one would be that while what we could consider, you know, sort of our everyday lives in an economic sphere leads to inequality that we might need to be concerned about. The policies that are implemented often have unintended consequences or are often less effective or maybe even worse than we might we might have already. And so if we care about issues of power and inequality, really assessing these policies and figuring out what is going on matters and the interconnection of policies that might conflict with one another. Um, so, uh, you know, there are some great books that have talked about the history of policy and intervention and how they've really changed the dynamics, um, such as the color of law that looks at issues with zoning and how they were done to uh, segregate and um, eliminate options for certain populations. Um, illiberal reformers is another one that kind of talks about this historical trend that we have to deal with. And policies we might think now as being progressive weren't when they were initiated back then. Other types of analysis that matters quite a bit is the regressive effects of policies. Um, so like if FEMA assistance is harder for those who need it most, or if environmental um, regulations that are meant to help us um, better protect the environment make particular goods more expensive for the 
for the poor, we need to consider those impacts. And so often we have all these multiple aims of policy. We want to um, help preserve the environment. We want to help the poor and we want to make sure power and equity, it doesn't matter, but we have all of these policies that interconnect. And so how, if we really are concerned with, with helping the least advantaged or the most vulnerable, we need to then be able to assess policies on a broad range and say, here's all of these sorts of policies that are impacting them harshly and making it harder for, for them to go about. Um, I don't think there's any easy solution for what should be community level governance and what should be state level governance. Um, I embrace the sort of messy and complicated framework that Eleanor Ostrom did with polycentricity. Uh, so the idea behind polycentricity, besides it being a complicated word, is that there's gonna be multiple levels and overlapping of government in kind of a, a society that we can think about. And so there will be certain things that should be um, handled at the local level and some that should be handled at the federal level in a whole variety. What matters for her framework is that there's competition among governance structures and there's overlap of, of goods. And so we might actually think of, you know, like uh, I'm an economist, so I love economies of scale. The idea of overlapping government or programs might make us feel like, oh, that's inefficient. Uh, but something that really matters about that is it's resilient. It allows for testing and exper experimentation. It allows potentially for less corruption because there's multiple options you can go to. Uh, not always the case though, right? And so I think there's definitely, if, we, if anyone's lived in a small town, right, it can be very hard to um, uh, get power if you aren't already um, uh, one of the elite of an area. And so we have to think about all those things as we take them into account. But I think no, there's no real clear or, or, or concise solution, but one that really addresses the messiness um, a scholar that was at Mason, Don Lavoie, did work on, uh, he has a book called National Economic Planning, What is Left? And the idea behind that is to really think about um, central planning, like that addressed by Joe Kane in the chapter for our volume. But also, what does it mean to be progressive when we have this rising government? And he talks about how a more centralized government over time will become more militarized, or the power problem will become more intense. He's writing in 1985. We've seen issues with the militarization of police and other areas already. We've seen how this comes into play. And his response is that we need this sort of radical decentralization. We need people to engage in governance. So you could think of kind of Tocquevillian government, like, you know, governance interactions and, and how we deal with that. Ostrom was very similar, like common pool resource solutions are messy and they require people to come together to come up with rules and how to, how to sanction them. And so I think when we care about those things, it requires we as individual citizens and residents participate in, in what's going on. And I think that can hopefully allow us to eat, at least bring up and discuss the issues of power and equity that we might want to address. Yeah, so to reiterate, I think that where you draw the line, um, which is ever moving, between using government to help individuals uh, to say alleviate inequality or um, between just setting the, the rules and the the institutional environment that will create them, allow the most solutions to inequality to arise um, is a conversation that will continue uh, perpetually in policy spheres. Now, uh, I think community really matters, but traditionally we've seen, we've seen government 
um, come in and disregard community interests. So Stephanie gave some, gave some good examples, but I think uh, another good example is from seeing like a state. So in this book, James Scott uh, pointed out that in Europe, they used to do strip farming. So they used to um, basically have strips of land of a certain length and a certain type, and one family would farm multiple strips of that land that were throughout the ecology, the local ecology. And then the government came in and rezoned it so that you had a square piece of land just like you'd see if you're flying over rural America. And what happened was it really raised the cost to individuals to continue to get the value that they were getting from the land that they had. So for example, uh, they would make agreements, arrangements with the people that owned where, the place where their strip used to be to continue to come in and keep farming that land uh, because, because they knew it and that's what they wanted to do. And so you can sort of see how some of these uh, higher level government interventions can really miss sort of the community level activities. Okay, on the notes of that answer, which I think was given with a lot of thoughtfulness and humility. Um, in keeping with our theme, I want to thank both of our speakers. That was absolutely fascinating. And I want to thank everyone in the audience for this discussion. Uh, please be sure, again, to pick up a copy of this book in the lobby on your way out. Uh, please enjoy our lunch. It is on the second level up the spiral staircase. Uh, there are bathrooms on this floor and on the second floor. And please join me in giving our speakers a round of applause.